Good to be here with you guys, and uh, it's a shame that this is a clear uh, pulpit, because now you can see my legs moving. <laughs> um, so I, uh, um, I'm going to pray before we get started, and then we'll go into it. So, uh, dear God, we thank you for another Sabbath and the rain. We just pray you be with us now and here in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so I would like you to guys to help go back with me and uh, think about it. Uh, a, a sort of a never-never-land experience where you receive a letter in the mail <clears throat> and the a check falls out when you open the letter and it's a very large check and a, a short note is basically from a lawyer saying that your mother had a brother that she never spoke of but he, he didn't have any kids and so he's decided to bequeath his entire fortune of one billion dollars to you. <laughs> So, you know, you could be pretty excited about your bank account going from $100 to $100 in a billion. Um, but now you have to think about what are you going to do with all of these funds? And uh, I don't know. I, um, probably the first thing will be to pay off all those loans. Yeah. And uh, it might also include some uh, purchases of things you would like to have gotten maybe a house, another house, maybe you'll move out of the apartment. And, uh, but uh, the other question is, um, what will you not do? You know, now, now that you can pretty, money is a what usually? What do we think of money as another way to say it? Power, yeah, I heard someone say it. Uh, one bank commercial says, you know, the power to do what you want. You know, so money is really just another way to get things to happen. And uh, so now you can pretty much do um, within, but even then, within the law, and we know with a good lawyer, you can even stretch that a little bit, that you can do a lot of pretty much what you want now. And so you have a, a whole other set of things in front of you. So today I want to take us back in the Bible to a story of a man who was a steward of a large fortune. All right, so if you want to open your Bibles, I'm not going to do a PowerPoint, um, and uh, I was trying to get this done so that you guys could have a printout with me, but I failed in that regard, so you have to just follow along in the box. So Luke uh, 16, this chapter goes through two parables that are all about stewardship, okay? So stewardship... Is a, is a way of saying you, you've been given a certain, uh, certain fortune, a certain area of land, and now your job is to take care of that, right? Your job is to use those resources in a way that will honor the person who gave you that money for that time period. Does that sound fair enough? Um, so... Luke 16 is about two different parables. Now, the first parable is a really interesting one about a man who is godless and does not really think about um, the future life and, um, and like you guys are right now, going to church and trying to be um, closer to Jesus and those kind of things. He's totally not that person. Uh, anyway, that parable is another for another day. But the second parable is about a very different person. And... What we're going to do today is try to go into the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. So to set the scene, who was 
the audience that Jesus was speaking to when he was speaking this parable. So let's look at um, chapter 16 of Luke. And if you have your phone or, your, or the Bibles in front of you, feel free to, 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 to look in there with me. So Luke chapter 16 and verse 14, it gives us the, one of the groups of people that was there listening to Jesus. So it says, now the Pharisees who were lovers of money also heard all these things and derided him. So the Pharisees were one of the groups of people there. Now in verse 1, it says that another group of people were there as well. And if you go there with me in verse 1 of chapter 16, it says, And he also said to his disciples, There was a certain rich man who had a steward, and an accusation was brought to him that this man was wasting his goods. So the other group of people was, were who? The disciples. So you have the disciples and the Pharisees. Two people that were, one was going to be the inheritors of the kingdom, the new covenant that Jesus was establishing. And the others were the sort of the purveyors of the current system. And Jesus was speaking a parable of stewardship to them. Now, when we go to verse uh, 19... This is where the parable gets started. So we're just going to read the parable through one time, and then we'll go through it piece by piece. So Luke chapter 16 and verse 19, and it says, There was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. But there was a beggar named Lazarus, full of sores, who was laid at his gate, desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores, so it was that the beggar died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried, and being in torments in Hades, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. Then he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I am tormented in this flame but Abraham said son remember that in your lifetime you received your good things and likewise Lazarus evil things but now he is comforted and you are tormented and besides all this between us and you there is a great gulf fixed so that those who want to pass from here to you cannot nor can those from there pass to us then he said I beg you, therefore, Father, that you would send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, that he may testify to them, lest they also come to this place of torment. And Abraham said to him, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father, Abraham, but if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to them, but if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead. Amen. Okay, so in a, in a very fascinating parable. And, you know, for those of us with, that have grown up in the Adventist world, uh, somewhat uh, striking in moments. <laughs> so we have some interesting things going on here. Uh, the first thing we want to talk about are the characters, though, before we even discuss the issue of hell and that kind of thing. Um, the characters, the first one is the rich man. So let's look at verse 19 and try to examine this a little more carefully. 
So look, Luke 16, 19, it says, The certain rich man was clothed in what? Purple, and what else? Fine linen. And fared sumptuously, how often? Every day. Now, he was rich. You know, we, we, we've, we've gotten, I think that point has come across just like you guys now in our make-believe world have all inherited a billion dollars. He was rich. And number two, he feasted daily. Now, um, for those of us perhaps who have inherited some, some, some trauma from, from Adventist parents, I, I know I've talked to some families here who've had that issue, but Sabbath wasn't always a joyous day. Have any of you guys had that in the past, some issues with that, perhaps some of you? Um, you know about Sabbath was sort of like a, a little bit of a, a roadblock to the happy times of the week. <laughs> and so when you come to Sabbath, you're just, you can't do this and that, you can't do this and that. And it wasn't that way in the Jewish system. Um, the only day that was a Sabbath that was a fast day was the what? Does anyone know? The only Sabbath fast day in the Jewish system? The Day of Atonement. The, every other Sabbath day was a feast day. It was forbidden to fast. And so the idea being that it was a good time. You know, food here in America is so rampant, we have to cons constantly remind ourselves not to eat. But when, when, you know, in an ancient system, that wasn't always the case. And so food, a feast day was a big, it was a happy time because we have some food. <laughs> you know, so, you know, you're, you're dependent on the grain coming in to get your food for that next year, right? So if, if that doesn't happen, you're not sure. Like we have what we call food security. Um, so at that time, a feast day then would be a happy time. We're eating. Okay, so if you go to Nehemiah 8, verses 9 to 10, you don't have to go there, but if you'd like to, I'm going to go there. So Nehemiah 8, 9 to 10, this gives us kind of a picture about this. Nehemiah and uh, 8 and verses 9 to 10. Okay. All right, so it says, And Nehemiah, who was the governor, Ezra the priest, and scribe and the Levites who taught the people said to all the people this day is holy to the Lord your God do not mourn nor weep for all the people wept when they heard the words of the law verse 10 then he said to them go your way eat the fat drink the sweet send portions to those for them whom nothing is prepared for this day is holy to our Lord do not sorrow for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So on the Sabbath, this holy day, Nehemiah is instructing them to eat fat, drink sweet. You know, these are good commandments, right? Good, happy commandments. All right, so don't be, don't be mourning. And so this idea was throughout the Sabbath. Now, the, this rich man, though, in, we also know that the Sabbath commandment says something else. What are you supposed to do on the other days of the week? Work. So the feast day, the Sabbath, is one of the days. And then the rest of the days, like Hebrews said, we should strive to enter into that what? That rest, right? So you're working throughout the week so you can enter into that rest that's coming. Um, but he was treating every day like a Sabbath. He's just like, I like Sabbath so much, I'm going to extend it out throughout the whole week. Uh, he was also clothed in something interesting. Do you remember what, remember we, we said earlier he's clothed in what color garments? 
and then they had fine linen, right? Now this in Exodus 28 is the clothing of the priest. So he was, he was a religious, he was in the religious order in that time. So he also considered himself religious. Remember, uh, let's look at back at Luke, Luke chapter 16 and verse 24. Okay, so it says, then he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. So he calls out Abraham and says what to him? How does he connect himself to Abraham? He calls him his father. He is recognizing there, a, that's a religious statement. He's saying, I'm part of Israel. I get all the benefits of Israel. You're my father. Okay? So he's a religious person, unlike the first parable of chapter 16. All right, now that we've talked about the rich man. Let's look at the poor man, Lazarus. The only one that's named besides Abraham. The, other, the rich man doesn't get a name. Um... Sometimes people have said the rich man's name was Dives, but that was just a translation of the Latin. So it, it, was, it was just a Latin word for rich. So Lazarus is named, and I think that's interesting for a lot of things, and we'll talk about that in a second. But let's look at verse 20 here. Uh, Luke chapter 16, verse 20. But there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, full of sores, who was laid at his gate, desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, who came and licked his sores? The dogs. Now, when we see Lazarus here first, he is laid at the gate of the rich man. Now, you remember a story earlier in Luke where some friends bring someone to Jesus to get healed. Yes, okay. What, what sort of the, the happened in that story? How did they get the friend to Jesus? They had to rip up the roof, and they lowered him down in through this, uh, uh, you know, I guess some, some, uh, some sort of a makeshift cot and right in front of Jesus. And Jesus healed him and forgave his sins. It's a great story. We can't do it today, but it's in Luke 5. So this is sort of the idea. that The idea of the beggar here, like if you read the Message Bible, it says he was sort of thrown at the gate. And, and that could be the way it happened. It's possible that he was just sort of like cast there like, uh, we just got to, we have some, someone you need to take care of and boom, just, just do something to help him. Uh, but it's also, it, it looks like it's more likely from the book I was reading about this that it's, he was laid there by friends, okay? Because they knew the rich man had money to give to help him. All right, so... Another thing that we come in contact here with Lazarus is the idea of dogs. Now, when you think of dogs in the Old Testament, is there a, a, what stories come to mind for you guys? I know for me there's a certain story. Jezebel, yeah. So that, that one's like the most vivid. You know, the, the, the pr prediction was that you are going to be eaten by dogs, okay? It's not a happy burial. Um, and that was exactly what happened. The only thing they found after Jezebel was eaten was her skull, sort of broken up. Now, another, her husband, Ahab, what happened to him with dogs? They licked his blood. Okay, so dogs in the Old Testament have this, have this idea of kind of a bad rap. Now, I think it's interesting as far as Jezebel goes that dogs were the ones that were, that ate her corpse. Now, if you, 
there's this interesting article, and they, they, they have done some excavations in Ashkelon, which at that time was controlled by Jezebel's father. She was a princess of Phoenicia. And so her father was in charge of Ashkelon, probably. Now, Ashkelon was the place they found the most buried dogs in the ancient world. They found 1,000 dogs buried. And not, not just sort of in a way that's just like, like a lot of dogs they found in excavations were thrown into rubbish heaps and sort of, you, you could see they were just burned as they had died. These dogs were carefully tails behind the legs, laid down, sometimes with some things with them. 70% of these dogs were puppies. And they, they, uh, they don't know exactly what was going on, but the, suffice it to say that in the ancient world, dogs were thought of as a healing. Um, there's several stories that go into this idea. And the um, licking of the wounds was actually something that people would do sometimes for healing. So Luke perhaps was referring to this when he was mentioning it. Now, in Job, there's actually a positive use of a dog here. Job chapter 30 if you guys want to go there with me, verse 1. Um, Job chapter 30, verse 1. But now they mock at me, men younger than I, whose fathers I disdain to put with the dogs of my flock. All right, so Job here has dogs that are part of his sheep herding uh, business. And as any sheep herder knows, dogs can be a huge help in keeping the herd in the right place, and also protecting from lions and tigers and bears, right? Yes. <laughs> All right, so the, the, for a shepherd uh, f world like the Jews were, the dogs were actually really, uh, could be very useful. And um, there's an interesting book that is not biblical, and I'm not saying we should take it for doctrine, but it's very interesting in terms of learning the ways of the Israelites is, is an apocryphal book of Tobit. And Tobit has this journey. He has to go to Persia to reclaim some money from his, uh, a friend of his or relative. And on the way, a dog, his, his dog, helps him along the journey. And it's uh, very interesting. It's uh, kind of giving this idea that perhaps dogs became companions at some point in Israel's past. And it would not be hard to imagine how if you use dogs for sheep herding, you could transition to thinking them as pets. Now, no civilization revered dogs in the ancient world more than this one group, though. Does anyone know which group loved dogs the most that we know of? Evidence? Not the Egyptians. The Greeks. They found with... Um, uh, burial sites of dogs with tombstones where the dog has actually been given a special tombstone. And no one else in the ancient world did that. Um, so dogs in the, in, into the Greek were very uh, considered friends and family members sometimes. Um, so a lot like what we think of dogs today in America. Um, so the, the reason I'm bringing all this up about dogs is because when Lazarus is being tended by these dogs, it may not be the way we think of uh, as just a bad thing. It may be that the dogs were his only friend. No humans were his friends, just the dogs. And so he's, he's, the picture there is humans have given him, no human sympathy is willing to reach out to him 
only a non-human is willing to tend Lazarus. So it's a very pitiful scene. So going back to Luke chapter 16. So Luke chapter 16. We see the reversal that happens. Okay, so in verse 22 to 23. All right, so here we're going to go in there. Uh, so it was that the beggar died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And being in torments in Hades, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. Okay, so this passage here begins a very interesting twist on the story. Now, this wasn't something that was so unusual. Like in Jesus' day, there were some stories like this. And I think a good question is, why would Jesus use a story that is so patently against the Bible understanding of the state of the dead? Um, so I think there's some answers that we can think of about that. So first off, the rabbis in the Talmud had a story like this where they were just questioning, does money alone mean someone is good? And so they had the story of a tax collector and a very poor Bible scribe. He was a researcher. He loved the Bible, read the Bible. He was very poor. And so they, they had a story. And then when, when they both died, the scribe goes to, goes to the good part of Hades, and then the tax collector goes to the bad part. Okay, so it's the same idea. And so Jesus is just taking that and twisting it a little bit. Um, that's, that's what we're thinking is happening. Um, the, the other thing that, that also is there is that when Jesus was growing up in Nazareth, he was next to a town that, they, uh, you know, like uh, Quincy is sort of the satellite town of Tallahassee. It's one of the satellite towns. And that all the business and all the activities happening here. So in Nazareth, that was kind of a satellite town for the city of Sesphorus. And Sesphorus was a, was a very well-to-do place, lots of culture there, lots going on. And so Jesus would have interacted with lots of Greek ideas. He, would, he was trilingual, which he would spoke Aramaic, Hebrew, and Greek. So he would have, this idea of Hades and the story would not have been so foreign. Um, and you have to remember also that since Alexander the Great, the Hebrew culture had been infused with Greek ideas for long periods of time. So these ideas were not foreign to that area. Um, so that's, I think, some of the reasons why Jesus would have used that story. Um, another one is when we look at this verse in chapter 22, so notice that where is the rich man when he is tormented? He is in where? He's in Hades. And he lifts up his eyes and sees who? In verse 23. He sees Abraham and Lazarus. So it doesn't say he sees them in another place. He's still where when he sees them? He's in Hades. This, both groups are in Hades. Now, this may be somewhat of a shock to you guys because you would, reading it from like a Western point of view and a modern view, you're thinking Abraham's in heaven. But that's not what this story is saying. Abraham is in Hades with Lazarus, and then the rich man's in a different part of Hades. Now, in the Greek idea, Hades was a place where everyone went when you die. Everyone would go down into Hades, okay? Now, initially, it was very vague, like it would be sort of like, 
like in, in, the, in the Odyssey, there's the story where um, uh, Odysseus goes and he, and, he, and he sees these dead people coming back, okay? And they're, they're totally unrecognizable. They're not, uh, they don't know who each other are. He, he makes a sacrifice and they start to remember a little bit. But it's, it's very vague, very empty. And like there's this famous saying there that Achilles, he meets Achilles from the Iliad. And he says, you know, isn't it great that you're down here? You're a hero and all this. And, and Achilles says, I would rather be a slave on earth than a king of Hades. He, th- it was very vague, very ethereal. Now, as this time went on, the idea of Hades develops. And so by the time you get to the Romans, they've made Hades a very conscious a very you know, defined, and they see Hades as something that you're going to have rewards and punishments. And so this is around the time Jesus is, is ministering. So to a Greek, this would be understood as well. They would understand, okay, this is the good side of Hades, this is the bad side of Hades. And even um, today, the Greek Orthodox Church still holds this idea that there's this in-between state where both good and bad go, and then at the second coming, there's a, a, you know, a escalation where the righteous come out. So this idea continues in some churches. So Hades was a place where everyone went. Now, as far as the Bible goes, if you go to 2 Peter 2, verse 4, 2 Peter 2, verse 4, we know that hell, the judgment part of hell, happens... In 2 Peter 2, verse 4, it says, For if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down into hell. Now, this word hell is an interesting word. It's Tartarus. And it was in the Greek time at that era, it was the section of hell where the punishments would happen. Okay? So he cast the angels down to Tartarus and delivers them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment. So in in chapter 4, Uh, excuse me, verse 4 here of 2 Peter, it says that the judgment is happening in the future. It's not now. And if you go to Revelation 20, 9 through 15, you'll see that the great white throne judgment is when this hellfire happens and all that. It's it's far in the future. So in, in terms of biblical doctrine, the idea of this being uh, uh, that when you die, you go straight to judgment or, or, uh, you have good, you go straight to heaven, is not what the Bible is saying. Jesus is using a story that is well known in the area to explain a point. And uh, if you go to Acts chapter 7, in verse 60, Acts chapter 7, verse 60, we see that when you die, this is also written by Luke, what happens? Okay, so... Stephen has just made this sermon. He's got everyone all riled up, and then they're stoning him, and he's about to die. And in verse 60, he says, Then he knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. So when he died, it was, according to Luke, the same writer who wrote this passage, he went to sleep. And he waits for what? So um, the... Second coming is when this idea of the awakening up will happen. And 
if you go to Acts chapter 2, there's another interesting passage here. Acts chapter 2, verse 29, it says, Men and brethren, let me speak freely that the patriarch David is both dead and buried and his tomb is with us to this day. All right, so David was dead and buried. And then in, in verse 27, it says, For you will not leave my soul in Hades. All right, so when this, it's interesting that Peter is, is making this uh, statement about this idea of Hades, and he says that, well, David's still here. He hasn't gone to heaven. He hasn't gone to anywhere. He's still with us right now, waiting for that resurrection. So when we see these um, verses that are somewhat strange, I think sometimes what we've done is run away from them because it doesn't really fit the idea. We, we get scared, and, and, and we miss out on a huge blessing. And uh, there's a lot more we could say about that, but I think that the point is that the parable is telling us a story that with elements that are not true, okay? He's using a fictional story to make a point. Okay, so after the Hades topic, we see something else that happens in uh, verse uh, chapter 16 of Luke again, going back to our parable. In verse 23, it says that Abraham was in the bosom of, uh, excuse me, Lazarus was in the bosom of Abraham. Now in John chapter 13, another disciple was in the bosom of someone else. Does anyone remember what, who that was? Jesus was, he was having the last supper and John was reclining and was in his bosom. So it was kind of this place of honor that was at the table, the closest spot to Jesus was where the disciple was located. And so this idea is that Lazarus now has achieved this place of honor after he's died, whereas, as, whereas the rich man has not. So in verse 24, let's, let's continue on with the parable. And it says, uh, the rich man cries out and says, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send who? Send Lazarus. Now, what's really fascinating is that the rich man here, even in his terrible state, still is ordering Lazarus around. Go tell, tell Lazarus to come get me some, something to drink. You know, <laughs> it's this really fascinating concept that the rich man still has not gotten it, even in his bad condition. Um, and then Abraham says, child, remember in your lifetime, you received good things, Lazarus in like manner, bad things, but now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. And besides all this between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. So this idea of great gulf is, is fixed. So once you die, there's this interesting uh, verse in Hebrews that says, you know, we are appointed once to die, and then what? Judgment. So this idea is that once we have lived our life here, we have this certain number of days. We don't know how much it is, but we have given a certain time to decide our destiny. Once that happens, then the next thing is the judgment, okay? And there's no second sort of, uh, uh, we, we, another term that's come to uh, 
uh, some churches use are, is like a purgatory where there's this idea that, that perhaps after death you can sort of be renewed to a state where you can go to heaven after a while of, of suffering, okay? But that's not what this parable is teaching. Once you die, your, your, your destiny is sealed. It's, it's completely decided. What we do in this life um, is what determines our destiny. Now, it says that Abraham, uh, the rich man is very concerned because he has how many brothers? He has five brothers. Now, I thought this was really fascinating because if you think about the story, uh, you, you have with the rich man, the rich man makes with his family how many brothers total? Six. And we know that the, the perfect number is what? In the Bible. Seven is the good number. So at his gate, there was, there was laid what would have completed his family. He, was, he had five brothers, but he needed one more to make a complete family. He had the op opportunity to have someone that could have enriched his life and helped his whole family, but he, he ignored it. Now, I think it's also interesting is that, that Lazarus, while he was sitting at the gate, the rich man doesn't scare him away. He lets him sit there. And sort of, you know, maybe he's thinking, you know, maybe he'll, he'll get some ideas and he'll, he'll start pulling up his own bootstraps, you know, pulling himself up by his own bootstraps. You guys are familiar with that phrase. He'll, he'll be inspired by my wisdom and my excellent feasting how to live. He doesn't send him away, but he doesn't do anything either. And, uh, you know, when, when we see here, he, he requests that Lazarus come back from the dead. Now, this story is pointing us back to another story in uh, John 11, where Jesus raises another Lazarus from the grave. Now, when he raises that Lazarus, what is the result? Does everyone say, you know what, Jesus, maybe you, there is something to this, uh, all these stories you've been telling and all these parables, all these, you know, sermons you've been giving. What, what did the Jewish leaders do? They wanted to kill him. So the raising of Lazarus was the pivotal point in, in the book of John where everyone just focuses on we're going to make a, we're going to figure out a way to get rid of him. So Abraham says something else here that's really interesting. In verse 29, what does the five, what do the five brothers have? What did the rich man have? Moses and the prophets. So basically the, the rich man here is saying, you have, uh, excuse me, Abraham is saying, you have the most important thing, what determines destiny, and that's the Bible. Okay, it, based on the Bible is how we rise or fall. And so it's how we treat the word of God. That's how we our destiny is determined. And in a way, there's also something here that's, that's, that's merciful. Because if, if God were to send back Lazarus, what would have been the result to those five brothers? They would have had more light, more information. And so now they would have been guilty of more sin. So in some ways, you know, they haven't received the light that has been given, so God doesn't send them more. 
And, and uh, Jesus did an interesting, similar thing to that when he was in front of Herod, and Herod brought all these sick people in front of him, and he's like, please heal them, and he wouldn't speak to him. Why? Because Herod rejected the first word that was given to him through who? John the Baptist. Okay? So he didn't want to condemn Herod with any more sin. He didn't want to give him any more life. So that's what I think is how that's going on there. So he's, he's protecting them in a way. Now, in the, in the ancient world, um, there's this idea of, of atheist. And it's slightly different than the way we think it now. When we think of atheists, we think of someone like Richard Dawkins or you know, Jerry Coyne or Christopher Hitchens, these big strident atheists that go around convincing you that God is not real and it's just a fanciful, imaginary, you know, fairy tale, that kind of thing. So that's not what atheist was in the ancient world. Atheist was someone who just didn't live as if there was a God. Who, excuse me, who lived as if there was no God. In other words, he's not necessarily denying that God exists. He's just saying, I don't care. Yeah, so, so the rich man was doing that. He was living as if there is no great beyond. Um, the, uh, another society much different than ours, the Egyptians, their, their GDP, you know, we like to talk about the GDP and uh, um, as a, you know, a way to, to measure the health of a nation, uh, no country has ever spent that much money on death, ever. Like the the Egyptians, like their their entire nation was focused around building a tomb. An amazing idea. We we are we try to get as far away from that as we can in, in the in the modern world. But back then they were just celebrating. It was a big deal, and they would put all these wealth in there, and it was just perfect because grave robbers for centuries would be reaping the benefits of all this hard labor. Um, cause you could just pull out gold after gold and, and, um, gold item after gold item. But in the, in the world to come, all the wealth you can amass is not going to do anything. That rich person is, he, he wasn't justified because of his wealth. What we have to remember is with whatever gift we've been giving, whether it's the billion dollars that your, um, fabled, uh, relative is going to donate to you one day. Or it's, maybe it's just some extreme talent at something. You know, everyone has some gift to give. What are we doing with that gift um, in, in terms of how uh, are we looking for, like, the future world? Are we keeping that in view? Um, the story, uh, the, the other character that's in here, Abraham, um, we just finished our Sabbath school lesson. This quarter, the last quarter was about Hebrews. And Hebrews is all about Abraham. Um, and, and it talks about the man of faith. And he lived his life. He, he was a very wealthy man, but he lived in a tent. He left his city, established place. He lived his, his, he was, so wealth is not necessarily the problem. It's just where your focus is, how you live. What are you doing with that wealth? Um, one, uh, another thing to note is, the idea of parables, Jesus is picking up on a tradition in the prophets where parables were used as a way to be like a sword. Um, often what we like to do with parables now is we like to try to do the, all of these interpretations. We like to make it like this big, grand allusion to the 
population of the church and then the Gentiles and the Israelites and all that. And it takes away from the, what Jesus was doing, which was he was in a gathering not like this, where you guys are seated very quietly and, 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 and uh, very respectfully, but it was, in a, it was in a crowd where they were interrupting him. And they were, there was people that didn't like what he was saying. And they would say, oh, that's not true. And then it was very irreverent, informal, but it was very, he was engaging. And so these stories would capture their attention. And so, you know, you get that idea when the soldiers come to arrest Jesus, the parable, he, he, um, they're like, well, never, no one ever spoke like that before. We can't, we can't really arrest him. And so when you go back to second Samuel, Jesus taking an idea of Nathan, remember Nathan, what, what he did to G, uh, to David, David had just had this sin with Bathsheba. And so he tells him this story about this man who had a single sheep and, 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 uh, this little lamb and he cared for it. His whole family loved it. It was kind of like the pet. And then this rich man had many sheep and then, uh, he didn't want to kill any of his sheep cause he was, you know, so he found his servant, got his lamb. They killed it when a, when a friend came in for, for the weekend and David was enraged. He was like, this is terrible. This is a, this guy's going to die. He's going to pay four times what that lamb was worth um, in, you know, his, from his estate. And then Nathan says, what? You're the man. So what the parable was doing was it was a sword. It was like you, you lose yourself in the story. You're like, like the Pharisees, they were not, they didn't believe in feasting every day. They were very, they were Stoics. So they believed in fasting. We're praying. So they would, they would be, a, yeah, this is a terrible guy. He should have been in hell. He should be messed up. And then Jesus is pointing it at the end of the day. He's saying, you guys are not using your gifts to help other people. So he was using it as a sword. And so I think when we think of the story, we have to try to hear that story in the way that Jesus was hearing. It wasn't something to be just sort of interpreted and, and sent off into sort of this vague church-wide application. It's something that should be applied to each one of us. So what do we do with this story? I think the first thing is that we should not ignore problems. There's this baseball player, Kurt, Kurt Flood, from the St. Louis Cardinals, and he had this little conversation with Anheuser-Busch, one of the Bush, not Anheuser, but one of the Bush uh, owners, and he's like, you know, Bush was talking to him, and Mr. Bush said, you know, well, wh why aren't you going over to stay with the other boys at the hotel? And he's like, oh, no, I, I can't stay at that hotel. I have to go way over there to stay at the hotel. He was so much in a bubble that his own player, he didn't realize how terrible his life was that he would have to go the other side of town to live in just to play baseball on that team. Ignorance. We shouldn't be ignorant of the problems around us. Um... I think another thing we can do is we can do what lies nearest. Whatever is around us, like the, the poor Lazarus was desiring to be fed with what? What was his desire? With the crumbs. The crumbs are what? what? When you think of a feast, what is the crumb? The leftover. It's what you don't need. So all Lazarus needed was what the rich man had excess of so when we when god is asking us to serve i think sometimes we think we have to be a monk we have to go out and give everything away live life in a destitute part of the world and 
pray that God will send us a raven, you know? But that's not what he's talking about. He's saying, out of what I've given you, there's this interesting idea where the Jews at the end of the week will have this cup, and they'll, they'll pray, you know, God, please fill our cup. And the cup represents the family and, the, and, their, and their household. And then the idea is, after the cup is filled, it'll do what? Overflow. And that overflow then, can, please God, help me so I can help my community. First you take care of your family, your community, and then that overflow, God wants you to help out with those around you. And so that's what God's wanting us to do, just to take from what we have, from what we've been blessed with, and go out and help those around us. Luther called this parable a sin of omission. It wasn't something he was actively sinning. It wasn't like David. He had sinned against adultery. He was sinning by not doing something. Okay? It wasn't an active sin. It was a, just an omission of something he was supposed to do. One note is, too, to remember not to do toxic charity. That when we think of sometimes um, we like to go and fix our conscience by going out and passing out a few sandwiches. Um, we like to go down to the mission trip. There's this interesting book where this church went down in Mexico to help paint another church. They painted it. And then a few weeks later, another church came and they painted it. And then a few weeks later, another church came and they painted it. And by the end of that summer, that church was painted six times because someone wanted to help the poor. But it's just in a classic example of us being so like, you know, maybe the pastor told him, look, we've already had the church painted. We need something else. Oh, no, we're going to paint it. We don't care. We just want to go fix our conscience so that we can be in Abraham's bosom. Right? So, you know, we, we need to be better than that. We have to, when we go out and minister, when we, when we see these homeless out here in Tallahassee, in Publix, you go out of Publix, every time they're staring at you, right in the eye. What do we do? <laughs> you look at them a little bit, you try to get away. But realize that when we think of the homeless in Tallahassee and people on the street living in, what we really, what we really need to call them is the open drug scene. These people are either psychotic or actively addicts to some drug. They're not homeless in the sense that um, they don't have a job, and so that's why they're out there. Almost every one of them have one of those two issues. The homeless, if you want to know where those are, they're living in the gas station in a car on one of these truck stops along the road or in a friend's house. They're working but they don't have a house to live in, but they're in someone else's place or they're in a car. But the people just out there walking around in the street, those are not the same group. But we should be educated about that. We shouldn't be just like, let's go out and help the homeless and do this and not really try to fix the problem, not really try to get in there and do something. We have to be better than that. Um, now, we talk about just the poor, and I think like it's interesting that the the, of the two characters, the person that was named was, was Lazarus, right? And that, again, I think if you read the Bible, it's abundantly clear that God cares about the poor. And if you forget the poor, that's a serious thing. But it, it also is true that, like, the idea of evangelism, like, this, the, the food is kind of like this, we're feasting on bread and honey and milk. And so we here in the church, we have so much truth, so much light, we can read the Bible, and we have like crumbs falling from our table that people are needing. And so 
But when we go out there again, just like the toxic charity, um, we can be we can be abrasive. I remember we were going to play frisbee, and um, uh, James knows this, and and my, like we were accosted by another guy. Um, he was he's a well-meaning person, but he just starts giving an inquisition about, are you saved? Are you going to heaven? And like just over and over, like it's very intense. And I can imagine if I wasn't saved, I would want to get the heck away from him. Because I, I don't really want to be part of whatever that is. Because it's just too much to me. But like, you know, we can do better than that. Like Jesus, when he was going out, he was reaching people in a way that was meeting their needs and then pointing them to the greatest need showing them how to, to see Jesus. And the way to do that is to go and, you know, there's lots of books, whether it's working with the homeless or the doing evangelism, there is tons of resources out there in our church and in the secular community. Lots of people have this desire to work with the homeless. We can become educated. We can do a serious good in this world. And I want to close with uh, Philippians 2, uh, verses 5 to 11. Philippians 2, verses 5 to 11. And uh, <clears throat> okay, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men and being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death even the death of the cross. Therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on earth and on those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father.